Well, uh, today's sermon is going to be a little challenging because today we're going to go over John chapter 1. So we're continuing through our, our series of, of 66 books. And the first chapter of John is just so much is crammed into it that you can easily do just a whole season of sermons on just this one chapter. So we're going to try to to get as much as we can just to get a little bit of an idea of just a profound uh, essence of what what John writes here. And so what we're going to do is we're going to really break down John 1, um, who John the Baptist was, why he's an important figure, uh, what does the Logos mean, what does this really mean of Jesus, the Logos, becoming flesh. And then we're going to end by looking at the story of Nicodemus and getting down to what does that mean to be born again, to be born again in the light of Jesus. And, um, and John 3.16, that famous verse, what does that mean in context? What does that mean that God so loved the world that he died for it? So those are our objectives for today. And um, earlier this service, I mentioned there's a scene in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus addresses rumors of who the community, who are the peop- you know, these people telling who he is. And the disciples are like, oh, you know, they say that you're John the Baptist, you know, they're the next John the Baptist or Elijah or the next prophet of Moses. And then he turns to them and famously asks, well, who do you say that I am? And that's our question for today. Who do you say that I am? And the disciples answer that he is the Messiah, you know, the one, the anointed one that is to come. And we're going to learn today what that means, um, really vividly described in John chapter 1. And it's interesting that I chose this example of Mark to describe John, because if you notice, this incident of Jesus asking his disciples who he is, is in every single gospel, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but not in John. But at the same time, even though this, this scene isn't there, at the same time, the whole gospel of John really gets to this question of who Jesus's identity is, this mystery that was uh, quite controversial, especially during the early time of the church. And so if you've ever read the gospels kind of back to back to back, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you take notes and you see, okay, what's God speaking through with, with Matthew? What's God's really revealing through Mark and making them unique? When you get to the gospel of John, you're going to start scratching your head. You're going to be like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm crossing examining my notes. I'm, I'm seeing all these new stories, these new episodes that aren't in the other Gospels. You know, why is that? You know, why is John kind of the black sheep here? Uh, some of the events that are actually in John are rearranged and placed in a different order. The most famous example is chapter 2 during the cleansing of the temple, which is normally at the end of most Gospels for John, it's at the very beginning. So you might be like, why? You know, why is John doing this? You know, why is he being so confusing? Um, the thing to, to realize of what makes John so different is that he's not just another biography of Jesus like the other Gospels are. There's not a rigid chron- uh, chronology of the events of Jesus' ministry and into his life and into his death and resurrection. What John does is more of a testimonial, emphasizing the miracles and wonders of Jesus. So he is telling you as a friend, you know, these are the reasons why we can see that Jesus is who he says he is, why Jesus is the Messiah. And if you look at the first half of John, there are, it's structured all around seven particular events. Um, John really doesn't, he omits a lot of the parables and a lot of teachings uh, because he wants to, to bring these stories to our attention. 
that show these seven signs or seven miracles that Jesus performs. And um, it demonstrates in so many ways that Jesus is this long-awaited Messiah. You know, we start with the first one, which is what? The turning water into wine, right? Famously, so why does Jesus do that? Why is that his first miracle? Well, if we understand when the temple or the tabernacle was first inaugurated and God's presence swept through the nation of Israel, there was festivities, there was celebration, there was um, a great feast. And Jesus, by making this his first sign, is showing that, you know, the king has come. The God's presence has come here on earth. The inauguration has come. So it starts out with that, and then it ends on the last miracle. Does anyone remember what the last miracle is? The raising of Jesus' friends Lazarus. So it ends showing and demonstrating it's Jesus' power is not just of man's right. It's showing that having the fullness of God's power, even over what? Even over death, raising his uh, friend from the, from the grave. So really, really profound structure that we find in the book of John. And so to this day, we see Jesus interpreted in so many, many ways, um, like I alluded to earlier. To many people, even today, they see Jesus as a great moral teacher, maybe, uh, they see him as a great healer that made profound healings during his time. Uh, the religion of Islam even sees uh, Jesus as the greatest of the prophets um, going into the end of days, unlike many of the other prophets. And yet, what do you call Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? You know, thinking outside of your denomination, outside of your religion, who does Jesus mean to you personally? Um, as we go through the book of John, John chapter 1, there were individuals who witnessed these incredible sayings, these incredible teachings, miracles, signs, and wonders of the Lord, of what Jesus was doing. But nevertheless, he was still seen as human, still seen as, as maybe a great prophet, maybe the next Elijah or the next David, uh, but not, not God come to flesh. But John clarifies that uh, more than perhaps any other gospel in his first chapter. So if you have your Bibles with you, I really hope that you can dig in with me to John chapter one, and we're really gonna, we're gonna try to go through briskly, but we're really gonna try to, to hone in on what this means. So John opens up his gospel very differently. Instead of talking about you know, the nativity of Jesus, he goes right in to comparing Jesus to what's found in Genesis 1, 1, the beginning of creation, the beginning of everything in very cosmological terms. So at the beginning of everything, there is what's called the logos. And uh, we can go into what exactly that word means, but just know that it, it equals Jesus. So logos, Jesus, you know, logos equals Jesus. That's the important takeaway that we want. Um, so he's doing two things at once. He's having this profound cosmological poetic introduction, this prologue in chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And then the verse that we're going to go through today, chapter 19, is the very first scene that we see in the Gospel of John, um, where John the Baptist is confronted by these Pharisees and these scribes. And, we, and as we go to the, um, the first part of that, that, that prologue, it says what the word, um, the word was with God, and then the word was God. And this is super duper profound when we think of what exactly 
that means. Um, that God, that the word was not just with God. Uh, we see that with other major theological themes. If you look at the book of Proverbs, there's um, a scene where you see um, Solomon write about, you know, the wisdom was kind of the architect that, that was with God. And you see it in this very um, personified means of, of what wisdom is. So, you know, the wisdom and God was like right there when the world was, um, was created. So the logos Jesus is in the same boat, but then John takes a step further. He says the Logos was God. Jesus was God. And um, so much of that is just, wow. It's, it's a lot to unpack. And the reason why that is, is because during this time, it was not at all clear who Jesus was, uh, even to the many of the early Christians. It wasn't until maybe about 400, 500 years later that we get uh, in the Council of Nicaea settled doctrine of um, the incarnation, this belief that we all hold that Jesus is both 100% man and 100% God, um, the homoousian of the same substance. And when we talk about this, you might think, okay, you know, do I really need to know this? Like, you know, I, I, you know, I believe in the Trinity, I believe in these uh, doctrines, um, but what does that even mean? Like, what does that mean to me? And first, what I want to tell you off the bat is that these doctrines or formalized statements of belief is not, you know, not, it's not what, you know, Jesus is, or Jesus is going to come to the, you know, you come to heaven, you come to the gate, and Jesus is going to have kind of this checklist of, you know, okay, you know, um, for you, okay, you got preterist, you got dispensational, okay, you know, you're good, you're good, you're good. It's not at all like that. So, what doctrine is, it's how fallen man can best articulate these profound truths that we find throughout scripture. So even though it might not be in the Bible directly uh, referring to things like, say, the Trinity or the Incarnation, we can see throughout scripture the amazing truths and um, confessions of belief that we as believers have. And this was so profoundly important uh, because later, a few hundred years later, Tertullian will take this verse and he's going to show how that we can understand that Jesus was not just a human Messiah. He was not just a king anointed for a later time, but he was God himself. And this is just mind-boggling to even, the, even Jesus' closest disciples. And so when we go and we see this, this truth come to light, there is so much that we can go. So, you know, in the beginning was the word, with God was God. And we can have that truth and accept it and know that God is living um, in us and through us. And we don't really have time to go through the Holy Spirit, but that is gonna be talked about towards the end of the book of John. Well, let's go to verse 14. It says that this eternal word, this eternal word, uh, this logos, this Jesus became flesh, lived among us. So an infinite holy being, God himself, infinite, became a finite, fleshly, painful, decaying body among us. And verse 18 tells us that although no one has actually seen God, God is made known to all of those who have seen the Son. So even though God's presence, if you look back in the Old, uh, the Old Testament, you'll see many instances where you know, the high priest will go into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God physically, but it's so powerful, it's so 
You know, the glory is just so much that we can comprehend that it will actually endanger us. So Jesus, but however, if you just see Jesus, see this fleshly person, uh, first century Nazarite, you see God himself, which is profound. So we're already, you know, the first verse into John, we are just in really deep waters, um, even when we compare it to the other gospels, that this is just, it's hitting the ground running. And so this sets up the first verse that we see uh, for our verse today. So these Jewish authorities are hearing about a man called John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was a very, very well-known figure at this time. Um, We hear about him through the historian Josephus. Like a few decades after the time of Jesus, there was a very famous historian that took a survey of of the the land of Israel and all their kings and all their activities. And John the Baptist was one of the, the main figures that he highlights and what he, his ministry in Galilee. So he's just this very eccentric preacher, uh, people of, the, um, people of the, the common man. Uh, he's very hairy like Elijah. Uh, he enjoys you know, wild honey and eating bugs. So he's just this very uh, different, different sort of preacher, but nevertheless influential throughout the land. And these Pharisees, these temple authorities are getting word about John the Baptist and his ministry and uh, his activity of baptizing. And one challenge for us is not to think of baptizing in our Christian sense of the word. Uh, in this Jewish context, what he's doing is cleansing. So for the first century Jews during this time, uh, what you would do before you would go to the temple or be part of the holy presence of the Lord, uh, you would have to not only be pure on the inside, but you would have to go and cleanse yourself physically and get all of your, your, dirty, your dirtiness off. Um, both physically and spiritually. And so it's very puzzling to these high officials, you know, why is this guy, you know, cleansing? You know, he's not a priest, he's not Elijah, he's not anybody, you know, so they go and and get these low-level scribes and and Pharisees to go check this guy out, you know, who does this guy say he is? So that's going to bring us to our um, verse for today. So if you could uh, stand If you're able to, we're going to read uh, our verse, John chapter 1, verses 19 to 27. Starting in 19. This is a testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you a prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said, who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him and said to him, why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ? You're not Elijah, nor the prophet. And John answered them, saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one who you do not know, and it is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. You may be seated. So the very first scene of the Gospel of John, and he's being confronted, this very popular uh, figure uh, is being confronted by the Pharisees. And they ask him, like, okay, you know, kind of a checklist. All right, are you Elijah? Are you a prophet? No, no, no. And so um, this popular figure is, is saying he's like a nobody. He's, he's not any of those things. 
And they're like, okay, well, you know, it's our job to know who you're saying you are, so just, you know, answer the question, please. Like, who, you know, what should I report back to my, to the high officials of who you say you are? And John gives kind of a non-response. He says that what? That he is uh, the light, the one making the paths ready for the Lord. And he's quoting uh, Isaiah 40 there. And what he's implying is that I am just the message bearer. I am just nothing. The one before me, or the one coming after me, is the one you're looking for, the anointed one. Not just that you are looking for, but what his audience, John, um, John the Apostle, his audience, those who read this gospel is for. Those here in the 21st century, that is who you're reading about. So this is just a really powerful and potent introduction to his gospel. And he goes on, and he mentions that whoever this figure is, is not just a human, God-talented you know, Messiah or person. This is God himself. And so we're going to see a few uh, dialogues. So I, I told you before that there's not a lot of parables or mysterious sayings that is recorded in the book of John. It's mainly story-driven. Um, and in each of these episodes, during the story, he'll, uh, Jesus will have something profound, kind of like a, a little bit of a parable or an allegory. And he encounters these different characters, and they're always confused, so they're always really confounded about Jesus, you know, taking everything he says literally. So, you know, if you remember the chapter 4 where he goes to the good, uh, not the good Samaritan, the, um, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, he goes and he asks, you know, um, the well that I have is living water. That's never going to run out. And so she takes this litter and like, oh, you know, well, you know, it took me 10 miles to get here. I want to, you know, I want that well. Yeah, give me that well, even though he's talking figuratively. Um, and the same is going to be the case here in Nicodemus. So as we look at the story of Nicodemus, Nicodemus is this really great prophet, one of the high uh, officials in the Jerusalem temple. And on the other hand, you have Jesus, okay, this 30-year-old country boy from Nazareth, who is a son of a carpenter, you know, has no lineage or heritage to speak of um, other than just a working class family. And yet his teachings, what he's doing, his signs, his miracles has really got this high official's attention. So Nicodemus is intrigued and has a special feeling about who Jesus is. So in the middle of the night, he goes and he asks Jesus and asks him profound questions. And of course it's at night because he wouldn't be caught dead publicly being caught with Jesus, um, this lowly uh, Galilean. And so he goes and he questions him, and he asks them, you know, that you are this great teacher. So according to Nicodemus, you know, you must be, must be a great rabbi. And instead of addressing that or saying yes or confirming what Nicodemus is saying, he just says a statement. He makes a, a really profound statement. Jesus responds by saying, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so, of course, just like the Samaritan woman, um, Nicodemus is really perplexed. He's like, okay, this is literal. Like, you know, how am I going to, you know, crawl back in, in my mom's womb and come back out? Like that, you know, is that really feasible, Jesus? Um, and of course, that's not what Jesus is talking about. So he clarifies and he says, uh, because um, he says, one that is born of water and spirit cannot enter unless it's spirit. So, and he further explains that those born of flesh 
comes from flesh, but those who bear the spirit continues into the spirit. So there's just a certain essence and distinction that God is making through the physical flesh that's born through the womb and the spiritual rebirth uh, that we must be born into if we were to see the kingdom of God. So Jesus comes and um, he talks about what this spirit is and uh, it's what we would identify later on as the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is just like the wind. Um, you know, humans can feel it and see the fruit of it, but it is unpredictable. It comes and goes, and there's just a mysterious aspect to it that we cannot fully recognize. And so he, so Nicodemus again is really stumbled, and Jesus admonishes him for being stumbled, for stumbling, because what he is the high official of this temple. He is the guy in charge for scripture. And so Jesus admonishes him and tells him, well, you know, if you don't know your scripture, then who else is going to know? So he tells him and makes it clear, you know, this is what your scripture has been pointing to, the Son of Man, the Messiah. And he does a few illustrations. The first illustration he makes is that just like the Son of Man is supposed to descend from heaven, and this is an allusion to the prophet Daniel when he talks about the Son of Man, this is crazy, a powerful figure that's going to come from heaven during the end times. And then he makes another allusion uh, to Moses and the uh, serpent staff. So if you remember in, in the book of Numbers, uh, the Israelites are rebelling and God punishes them by going and, and sending out, you know, these, um, these snakes to bite them and, and uh, give them wounds. But what does Moses do? He takes this, this staff or the standard and lifts it up and raises it and it instantly heals and cleanses them. And to that same effect, Jesus, to sin, is gonna be raised up. Um, and it's a double meaning here. So in one sense, it means he's gonna be raised up literally um, on the cross. But more importantly, it means he's gonna raise up and just like that staff is gonna heal the world of its sins. Okay, and now we're getting to the good part. John three sixteen. The verse that everyone thinks they know what it means. Um, <laughs> uh, it reads, That God so loved the world that his only begotten Son, and whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. One really important term that's used here is the word cosmos. So that, the, that word, word uh, world means something very specific to the author John. If you read how John uses that word in other instances, um, if you take like First John, uh, his letter that he writes, John, First uh, John, chapter twelve, uh, chapter two, fifteen, uh, he says he warns about the world. It's a very negative place. It's always in a negative connotation, uh, saying that the the world um, to not love the world uh, because of its lust, because of its fallenness. First uh, John three one says uh, the world does not know the children of God uh, because the world does not know God. Uh, chapter four verse four says, "Greater is He." who is in you than, who, than he who is in the world, referring to Satan. So we have this connotation of the, the world being this awful, evil place, a domain of Satan, and yet God so loves this cosmos, this world, that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever believes will not perish, but have eternal life. So, this place of darkness, this evil place condemned to hell. What does God do? 
Uh, Jesus specifies later on in the verse, and he says he does not come to judge it because judgment is exactly what this fallen world deserves. But no, but to save it, to show it mercy, to show it grace. And those who do not believe stand condemned already, being part of this fallen world. So even though this world has fallen, we have an out, and we have one and only out, that is belief in Christ Jesus and no other way. So, and this is made very clear in this dialogue. And those who reject Jesus are those who reject the light because those who hate what? Because those who hate the light hate what the light is exposing, the darkness in our own heart. So when we think about these profound truths of the gospel, about what Jesus does through this dialogue, how John is presenting it to an audience that's not quite clear who Jesus is. We still find ourselves, even today, having those same profound questions. Who do you say Jesus is? You might say, well, it's you know, someone I've heard all my life. Uh, it's someone I read about when I read my Sunday school lesson. It's someone that, you know, might be great, you know, might have been a great teacher, but man, I hate those followers, you know, his followers I can't stand. That's why maybe I'm not a Christian. So there's so many interpretations of who Jesus is, but my challenge for you today as we close out is who do you say he is? Because Jesus has told you who he is. He is the Messiah. And again, not just any other Messiah, not just a successor of David who was going to conquer Rome at that time, like many of the Jews thought, but God in the flesh coming down. And that paradox of all of eternity, all the power, all the brilliance that we can never comprehend um, is all in one person, one poor Nazarite that lived 2,000 years ago. How profound is that? That God, in his brilliance, used the least of us, the most humbled man, and turned his flesh and gave it to that as an example for all of us to live by. Not being a great king, not being a great conqueror, but a humble son of a carpenter. And though his signs and wonders were shown, what happened as soon as Jesus said something that nobody wanted to hear? Well, I'm out. You know, I've, I've seen this wonder. I've seen this miracle that God has done in my life. But man, you know, you know I'm not going to believe that. And so that's why, despite all these signs, despite this testimony that John tells us, so many people reject him. And how similar is our time now, where so many have rejected the light, so many have rejected what Jesus came for, and twist and turn Jesus into so many different things to fit their agenda. But they don't look at scripture to see what Jesus clearly tells about himself. So I challenge you, read John. Uh, when John was first writing this, he didn't have you know, three other gospels in mind. He was just gonna tell his immediate followers who Jesus was. So this was during a time after his resurrection appearances. For those who did not know Jesus personally, this, this book, this book of John, is a letter to those people. And I challenge you, read it. Read his testimony. Read the incidents 
the, miracle, the amazing stories of miracles and see how God can transform and has been transforming lives by the testimony John wrote 2,000 years ago. So I would close out and we reflect on who Jesus is. Um, and sorry, I know this is kind of a deep, deeper sermon than, than usual, um, but just think about who Jesus is and don't be bought in by the deceit of the cosmos, of the world, of the, the domain Satan has control of temporarily, get into the way of what Jesus himself has told about himself. So as we now go into a time of, of worshiping the power of Jesus, I invite you to the altar to maybe learn and know Jesus. Maybe you've heard of Jesus, maybe you have a vague familiarity with Jesus as you've raised, but no, I want the Logos. I want God made flesh into a relationship with myself. Let's go in prayer. Father, we come to you humbly, God. Lord, we know that you didn't have to send your one begotten son into this world, into the fallenness, into the trenches of a mess of our own fault, God, of our own sin and selfish desire. But you came not because you had to, not because we deserve grace, but Father, rather we deserve nothing but punishment. And yet you came and gave us a bridge not just to your people, the Israelites, God, but to the Gentiles, to the Greeks, to the Egyptians, to those of all tribes and nations. You've given us the bridge to yourself through your son, Jesus. And God, I pray for those here who maybe for the first time can understand the profound act of what Jesus has done, that he has come to die for this fallen world, for your darkness, God, for those in here that feel like their sin makes them disqualified from ever having to do anything with God. What, Lord, you came just for that person. So God, as we come to a time of, of worship and coming to the altar, Lord, I just pray that we can have a time of reflection of what Jesus means to each and every one here. And in your name we pray, amen.